Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our last session of Has American Christianity Failed? The study of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's book. Today we will be wrapping things up with a section that hopefully for those of you who are Lutheran will strike you as basic and for those of you who may not yet be Lutheran will strike you as the rubber hitting the road in terms of what uh, ways American Christianity has failed and what the biblical truth is and what recovering historic Christianity will mean for you. If we have time, we'll go into the appendix that he has attached, and I don't know that we will, but um, if we have time. And that appendix has to do with introducing the book of Concord. So if nothing else, hopefully we'll be able to briefly touch on what that is and what its role is uh, within, the, within the Christian church. So we will be picking up on page 232 at chapter 11, which he has titled, Surprised by the Gospel. Now, a bit of housekeeping before our invocation and prayer, and that is then a reminder that next week we begin Martin Chemnitz, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments, an Enchiridion. And if you've done any thumbing around through this book, you'll know that there are a number of introductions and prefaces. Feel free to read that in preparation for next week. I'll be rereading that to see if there's anything uh, particularly of value to talk about. But in terms of the actual material that we will be covering in, if not next week, then relatively shortly thereafter, would be uh, part, uh, the introduction and part one. So page 26 through page 38. So if you're one who likes to read ahead, study ahead, formulate questions in advance, then you would probably prepare uh, page 26 through page 38 for next week's study. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In Pastor Wolfmuller's book, page 223, Surprised by the Gospel, we last week just reflected very briefly on his introduction. Of course, he begins by quoting Ephesians 1, 7, and this is the biblical foundation of this chapter. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And of course, Pastor Wolfmuller relays to us again his experience in American evangelicalism prior to his becoming a pastor. And I think down at the bottom of page 232, it's a, a nice summary of his experience. There on the second line from the bottom, he writes, Everything was centered on me, my works, my life, my experiences and excitement, my resolve and sincerity, there was no kindness and mercy for me. There was no certainty or comfort. There was no gospel. And that may 
be an extreme experience. I don't know. I don't know how you would know, but I, it is a common enough experience. In fact, many of the members here at Faith Lutheran Church have, at some point in time, um, spent significant portions of their Christian lives in evangelicalism, and they report to one degree or another that these were things burdensome to them. The constant focus on the Christian rather than on Christ. When Christ was focused on, it wasn't Christ crucified for me, Christ my gracious Savior, Christ who is risen to daily be the pastor and bishop of my soul, but something more like Christ the encourager, Christ the life coach, Christ the one cracking the whip, Christ the one sitting rather disappointed that I didn't quite fulfill his will totally today, uh, that kind of Christ. And of course, without reflecting too deeply on it, we can see that the pastoral office is to reflect Christ. He is the pastor, capital T, the capital P, pastor. And so the office of pastor is the office of Christ. And how a man conducts himself within that office is a very important representation of how Christ is. And of course we have a plague of pastors, and none of us are perfect, okay, all of us are sinful, but we have a plague of pastors who present themselves rather as entertainers, gurus, all-around funny guys, and we would be deceiving ourselves if that doesn't have an impact on how we see Jesus. We very frequently see Jesus through the lens of the pastoral office. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why um, pastors in the Lutheran Church and in other traditions vest and wear garments, not to draw attention to ourselves, but quite the opposite, to cover ourselves as much as possible so that you're not distracted by my fashion taste or lack thereof, <laughs> as the case may be. You're not, you're not looking at me going, oh, there's Jeremy. Look at it. How, you know, look at what he's wearing. Look at what he's doing. Look at if he's in a good mood or not. But rather, you're looking at the office. You're looking at the garments of the office. You're looking at the man hidden and you're seeing a representative of Christ there. That's what you're seeing. And that's of absolute import to how we not only view our Lord, but then how we view our walk with him um, as Christian people. So just want to add that commentary without going into too big of a deep dive on it. It's all of one cloth. It's all of one garment. So... Wolfmuller laments his experience as ultimately being one devoid of comfort, devoid of gospel. We might even, even say beyond what Wolfmuller says here that a relationship with Jesus very frequently becomes a one-sided thing. It seems to be me doing all the doing and him just sitting somewhere, anywhere, nowhere, I don't know where, um, maybe pleased with me one day and displeased with me another. But what pivots, or really what changes for Wolfmuller is what he writes next, that then the gospel came. 
the promises, the forgiveness, up at the top of page 220 or 233. The surprise of God's love in Christ. And it is still a surprise. It is the most joyous and wonderful constant surprise, Jesus for me. And I think that that just gets right to the nail on the head that it is Christ crucified for me, and that's the center of our experience every Sunday when we go to the divine service. It's the great beauty and importance of attending a church that has Christ crucified somewhere in the sanctuary. Truth in advertising, as a case may be, truth in form, that the message be Christ crucified for you. And it's the reason why every day, uh, as Lutherans, and of course beyond Lutheranism, this is a very common Christian tradition, that every day you begin your day with the sign of the cross, and you end your day with the sign of the cross. Why? Because Christianity is what Christ has done for you and what he continues to do for you. And of course, then that takes shape and form in the quote-unquote Christian life. But we want to have the emphasis on the right syllable. Christ first for the Christian and the Christian life second. And with exactly that emphasis. If we have an eye for that, we'll see that that emphasis comes not from any human imagination, but right from the New Testament scriptures themselves. So basically, every epistle is lined out with Christ as the center, what he does for us, and then in us. What he does for us, we could call justification, and what he does in us, we could call sanctification. Okay. Let's pause there, see if you have any reflections, and if not, then um, we'll just go a little further into this last chapter. Ah, there's a hand. Um, up, up front here. Oh, yeah, oh okay, sorry. You're, you're Pac-Manning the other direction. Got the little maze set up for you here. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Good morning. I have noticed I try to wear a crucifix now because I've learned how important it is mm -hmm. to do that. But also, I do the sign of the cross for the last three years during service, and I feel fellow members are looking at me like a weirdo because mainly they have the feeling, which I used to have, that is so, uh, I am so holy and I'm Catholic and I put a crucifix on our front door and people do say we are Catholic. Ah, Roman yeah. Catholic. Yeah. So, you just plow through, is mm -hmm. my question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a great question and a great reflection because um, so much of what's happened in America has been um, simply what you described, that the sign of the cross and the crucifix has somehow become known as Roman Catholic. And I know that I grew up the same way and uh, had many of the same experiences, and for many years of my adult life did not cross myself because I was not taught to, and in fact, it was kind of inferred that it's Roman Catholic to do so. Uh, right up until I actually got around to reading the small catechism that I, you know, I was kind of supposed to be reading anyway, and in the small catechism itself, now, we should note here, Luther's small catechism, so the fundamental definition of what it means to be Lutheran, at the very beginning of the catechism, 
it instructs us to make the sign of the cross because the catechism is always set within that daily devotion that Luther gives us. So morning and evening, that's the concrete um, home of the content of the catechism. So once you find it there, you realize what a trick the devil has played on us all, that we've somehow been taught that making the sign of the cross or putting up a crucifix or, um, heaven forbid, uh, bowing during the divine service or kneeling if the church has kneelers or any other ex- bodily expressions of piety are somehow Roman Catholic and thus bad. Mm. When you connect all these dots in a bigger picture and you extrapolate from there what else has occurred in the, I mean, you can think of the larger architecture of the church. We don't want it to be stained glass because that's too Roman Catholic. We don't want an altar because that's too Roman Catholic. Or even anymore, they're just saying that's too churchy. We don't want to look like church. Well, wait, aren't you the church? Well, yeah, but we don't want to look like the church. Okay, there's some snake oilsmen, some snake oil salesman stuff going on there. There's some bait and switch stuff going on there, used car dealership stuff going on there. Um, some anti-Roman Catholicism, just knee-jerk reaction. If they do it, we're not doing it, which is real dangerous. You're going to throw out the Our Father as well. You're going to throw out the scriptures as well. Um, But then in terms of larger trend, there is a Gnostic element. And the Gnostic element says the form is not important. What's important is what's internal and spiritual and immaterial. This Gnosticism has spread all throughout American thinking in almost every aspect of our lives. And church has fallen under that same spell. And that's the idea that um, what matters is just you and your outward presentation to the world is just a self-expression of you and is largely unimportant, largely self-centered, largely idiosyncratic. And what that has caused is a whole bunch of Uh, buildings and architecture, internal and external, sometimes even our home decor, of just plain, nondescript, generic kind of, it's the, it's the palette and me, I'm the art. (laughs) And what's going on inside of me is what's uh, material and important. Okay, so without, again, going too much deeper than that in terms of our analysis, I think we can see that this is a societal thing that we're undergoing here in the West. And we need to realize that it's going to take us away, that impulse is going to take us away from the foundation of Christianity, which is, in the first place, the word become flesh, God in form. And that when God does in the scriptures give instruction in regard to worship, that worship is filled with concrete forms uh, of expression. You can think of the temple and how substantive it is and how beautiful it is and how it's very descriptive. You can think of the carvings of the cherubim, the carvings of the pomegranates 
And you can think of the ornateness of it, the concreteness of it. You can think of the incense. You can think of um, the altars and the sweet-smelling sacrifices made there. Um, a fully human, fully sensory kind of worship and kind of experience. And that is um, that is much what we want to lean back into. You can see this in the life of the Christian church, too, in some of their rites and rituals that we've just dismissed as, ah, uh, pish posh, we don't need that. We're enlightened 21st century Americans. Why, why do we have anything to do with um, rite and ritual? That's just superstition. Uh, well, okay, the flip side is you, excise, you exercise all right and ritual, and then you actually end up with kind of a formless, bland, nondescript, how is this different than an lecture, how is a sanctuary different than a lecture hall or an entertainment venue or a movie theater or a community center? And in many cases, they, they aren't. So it has everything to do with the physical expression of, of how the congregation, how the church looks, right down to our own personal piety and what's quote-unquote socially acceptable, even within quote-unquote Christendom, for us to do or not do. I just think we should rebel against all of that and just embrace the fullness of the faith that's been handed down to us. Embrace those things that are good. What might be the limiting factor on embracing or all of that? Um, if there is something that uh, somehow um, obscures the gospel, or somehow distorts something spoken in God's word, then we would not want to use that rite or ritual or form or whatever the case may be. Okay. Um, what would be an example of that? Well, is there anything wrong with a statue of Mary? No. Is there anything wrong with a statue of Mary in the sanctuary? No. Might there be something wrong with having that on top of an altar or as part of a procession? Yeah, that gets a little, uh, why? Because it starts to obscure that our focus ought to be on Christ. It starts to distort that our focus is being put on someone else. Maybe even our prayers are going to someone else other than Christ. And there's a whole lot of implication there too. Why would you go to his mom when you can go directly to him? Well, well, he's grumpy. I've got to go to, and that really is medieval theology, by the way. He's too terrible to approach. We've got to approach his mom and the other saints. So, yeah, we can weigh these things and balance these things with, do they obscure the gospel in any way? Making the sign of the cross, I can't see how that obscures the gospel. Having a crucifix, I can't see how that obscures the gospel. Maybe if people start thinking that if they touch the wood, they'll have a more lucky day, now we've got a problem, all right? But as far as I can tell, we're light years away from that kind of thinking. Thank you for that. Sorry to wax so long. Please, and then we'll get you. Yeah. Uh, with all these wrong concepts that people are getting, and looks like it's all because of lack of knowledge. Mm. But then the leaders, the they teach those wrong concepts too, mm -hmm. and that's how you know the people get some. And then it's comes into, okay, let's talk about spiritual blindness because these people getting the wrong concepts, they, are, they have they are a little blind on that. Mm -hmm. And it comes into the Holy Spirit's work 
So can you explain a little bit about that? How, you know, actually end up in God's hands? Mm, I'm not quite understanding the exact no. question. Could you could you just repeat that uh, or reframe it's, the question? Like, um, okay. I I'm starting from the point that because we're learning and if we hear what you're teaching or what the truth is mm-hmm. we're learning and we're getting because but other people they that they didn't hear about this and they still keep the wrong concepts mm-hmm. is because they're, they have lack of knowledge but then on that Conclusion, bringing to the leaders that the other theologians that is teach that they are teaching the wrong concepts. Mm-hmm. So why are they teaching that wrong, those wrong concepts? Is because they are blind, they are spiritual blind, and but the Holy Spirit works in our blindness, mm-hmm. correct? So how's that? How the Holy Spirit? Well, the whole route is end up in the Holy Spirit's hand mm-hmm. or end up in God's hands. Mm-hmm. So can you explain that? Yeah, well, okay, so let me, let me do my best. Um, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, of course, binds himself to the Word of God, where that Word of God is preached. There the Holy Spirit is to uh, work when and where it pleases him, and he uses that Word efficaciously to build up. And as we come to the knowledge of the truth of God's word, you know, that truth inherent in us is that, you know, the gospel of Christ and the nature of the church is not such that it existed in the first century, ceased to exist for 15 centuries, 14 centuries, appeared again with Martin Luther, maybe kind of disappeared again for a few hundred years, and then has appeared again with us. The scriptures themselves, the Holy Spirit himself, teaches us otherwise, teaches us that the church has always existed based in the word and the sacraments. That reforms our view then of the nature of the church and of the history of her doctrine and practices. We see ourselves then in continuity with the ancient church and we see ourselves in continuity thus also with the Old Testament. We see ourselves in continuity with all the people of God and that informs us then concretely in terms of our worship practices. How did they worship in the Old Testament? Well, with reverence, centered on God's word, centered on the sacrifice that Christ would make from the Old Covenant forward, foreshadowed by the sacrifices the priests made of the, of the animals. Uh, but what's the nature, what's the essence of that worship? You know, reverence, fitting for God. And then you see, how did the church worship for 2,000 years? Same thing. And then where the scriptures give us glimpses, glimpses into heaven, what is heaven's worship like? Same thing, liturgical, dignified, reverent. Boy, how should we worship? So it informs. Now, I think rather than pay attention to the high and mighty in their lofty seats at seminaries or uh, secular institutions, if we have an eye to see the way God sees um, the 
proud will be cast down and the humble will be lifted up. And the way that happens concretely is when we set about, as um, within our own households, the dining room table being the greatest of all arenas. That's the place where change actually happens. Similarly, in a humble way, the little congregations locked in perhaps by a freeway or a neighborhood or whatever else, that with a few people or maybe more than a few people, but not by any means the church of what's happening now, and we have the pure teaching there. The pure teaching always bubbles up from the humblest of origins, from the humble dining room table of faithful families and families who themselves are willing to change and conform to a more faithful way, and then individual small congregations. From these then God, from these that are weak and lowly, God raises up and exalts the lowly that they might overturn the high and mighty. So that's the way that reform is generally carried out um, throughout the history of the church. It's, it's not through, you can look at 1 Corinthians, um, where it's not the rich and wealthy and intelligent and those of noble birth that really move things, but the simple, humble, lowly of heart the, who receive the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. Um, those ultimately, that's, that's whom God chooses, and the way God chooses is the foolishness of the world to overturn the wise. And so I don't think we have to despair if our institutions are taken over by biblical professors who don't believe in the Bible, pastors who don't have the foggiest idea what it means to be a pastor, and churches who have no idea what it actually means to be church or why you would want to be church. And we just don't have to be upset when we see that if we realize that our vocation and calling is to is to our own dining room tables and to our own congregations. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, please. Uh, I appreciate the dining room table thing because it ties in. Um, talking about things that are wrong um, and going to the prayer. We've talked about that before. I forget whether it was here or Sunday um, about... Um, you know, the prepared or whatever prayers. Hmm. Um, I went into the lunchroom a few years ago, and before I ate, I said the common table prayer. And one of the, the, actually the only other person in there, gave me a bit of a hard time about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, I'd seen him before, and his wife would often come and, They'd have lunch together and he would, they would hold hands and he would pray a mini sermon for like five minutes Mm. um, because that was the right thing to do that he was making up, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, know, off the cuff kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he disagreed with my, you know, use of the common table prayer as something to, you know, as, as being too rote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to re-reflect on that very briefly, um, I think the, the problem comes in where we're going to condemn one or the other. Uh, and particularly in view in American Christianity, this idea that, it, remember, if it's not coming from the heart, then it's not really a prayer. And I think the emphasis of the scriptures would almost flip-flop that. Um, even though it is just a matter of emphasis. 
the written prayers are good for us in myriad ways, not least of which they teach and inform and shape when we do pray ex corde from the heart or spontaneously. In terms of blessing food, there's, I mean, not one prayer is better than the other, except I might argue that if it's too lengthy and the food gets cold, that's bad stewardship. <laughs> that's, that's a lack of hospitality. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I, what we see here is this idea, I mean, and I told you I, I, that I have, I have encountered Christians from evangelical circles who do not know what the Lord's Prayer is, period. What is the Lord's Prayer? And I've encountered others who, uh, more, obviously, who know what the Lord's Prayer is, but don't know what it is, like can't say it. Uh, this is the impoverishment that uh, American Christianity has drug us into, again, by this same kind of Gnostic thing of, if it's a form, we don't like it. So if that's a, if that's a crucifix, we don't like it. If it's an altar, we don't like it. If it's a prayer written down, we don't like it. We don't like form. We don't like external. We like internal touchy-feely out of the heart. Of course, there's a deep irony there. If you ever listen to somebody who prays exclusively ex corde, they have their own form. It recurs all the time. When they pray at the table and you pray enough with them, you realize that, oh, there's just slight variation of a few words, but it's the same essential structure. So I, I think there, too, um, not to cast judgment, but the point being, what we really need to press on is recovering a sense of humility about our prayer life, where we'd actually allow the scriptures and the history of the church to inform us. This happens all the time. I was reading a, um, a, a brief article, I think it was just this morning, from a pastor who was talking about um, a hymn that that uh, we we sing in the LSB, but as a matter of prayer and um, that he he was himself learning a a new way to pray, and that is that you not merely pray that God would uh, bring you out of temptation, but that God would, even in the midst of temptation, uh, strengthen you to overcome within it. And just what a profound change of frame and change of mind that is. Instead of constantly praying to be taken out of it, especially if you've already prayed to t- be taken out of it, like, I don't know, 1,200 times, and it's just not happening. Maybe you switch your prayer to, all right, strengthen me to endure this, strengthen me to, in time, overcome this, etc. Uh, so look, how are you going to do that ex corde? You're not. But by paying attention to the prayers of the church, the wisdom of the saints handed down for 2,000 years, the forms of, of uh, prayer in the Bible, and I, I really get excited about this in terms of the Psalms because you would ne- any Christian, any, especially American Christian, writing he could write you know like the monkey at the typewriter thing he could write a, a thousand different ex corde prayers and they wouldn't come close to resembling a psalm. That's a problem. That's that's not a feature. That's a bug. Our hearts are not naturally equipped to pray or formed to pray for what we ought. The scriptures are the great conforming element. And why do I say that so certainly in terms of prayer? Because they are in terms of theology, in terms of everything. The whole practice of, I mean, I think some people think this, that we just wake up on Sunday morning, walk up to the pulpit and open our lips, and there it is. 
the vast majority of preaching is conforming yourself to the text. What is the text saying? Now, immediately what floods into my mind is all my stupid ideas, but from a certain angle, the, the, the process of writing a sermon is, conf- is dismissing your stupid ideas and or twisting them until they're in conformity with the word of God, and thus now they're straight. And then you preach that. The same dynamic happens with all of theology. It's happening in our classes um, as we teach here at Faith. It's happening in our prayer life. So to just assume that whatever bubbles out of my heart is necessarily superior is really wrong-headed. Now, is that to cast aspersions against ex corde prayer? No, ex- pray away from the heart. But just realize that the heart is informed by the scriptures. Okay, that's probably enough on that. So. All right. Yes, please. Yeah, I don't want to say her name on the tape, but I sure. want to address the um, the second last comment. Mm, she was asking yes. why um, leaders teach such devotions. Coming back from my, I have to say, religious background, I um, was told that our main goal is to become a great saint of God, mm. which probably in itself isn't that bad. However, they gave you these steps. Ah, you need yeah. to do this. That and this, you needed to um, devote more time to Mary. You needed to spend more time worshiping the Eucharist. And it was all these steps. And so I see some leaders teaching some um, this form of devotion mm-hmm. because they're trying to, um, I guess, to their own strength, our own strength, to become mm-hmm. this great saint. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. These these things get set out before us. And of course, you mentioned some things that would be unbiblical and contrary to the teaching of the Bible. But um, yeah, these things, whether whether they're overtly wrong or even overtly right, get set up as some sort of s- system. Do these things and uh, you will you know, prosper or become a super saint or something like this. And that's just not how it works. That's how Americans think. If I just get the recipe right, then the end product will turn out right. But that's not how it works in reality. I thank you for pointing that out. Um, We can view different uh, acts of piety, acts of uh, ascesis, asceticism that the scripture gives us um, as medicinal in some ways, okay, as, as fit to treat various ailments and passions that have gone out of bounds. I mean, for example, one that our Lord says, when you fast, okay, or another that our Lord says, when you pray, or another that our Lord says, when you give alms. Now, all of these have a medicinal component. What is the medicinal medicinal component about giving alms? Waging war against your own selfishness. What is the medicinal component of, of something like prayer? Waging war and healing that which sees ourselves as completely independent, and I've got it all together. Um, what, what about then uh, fasting? Well, anyone who's fasted understands that it immediately weakens the flesh and weakens, uh, I mean, fasting is as close, is about as close as you get to a kind of panacea because when the flesh gets rowdy and powerful, you eat too much, you sleep too much, you pray too little, 
you don't care about anything. You're just fat and happy. I mean, Luther went so far as to say that when when he would eat before preaching, the sermons would be worthless. He had to, because you're just all fat and satisfied, and that's not a good way to preach. It's not a good way to do anything. You got to be a little hungry, have a little edge. Um, so these things are have medicinal components to them, but we don't line up all the medicinal components and go, okay, if I do X amount of X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to arrive at super sainthood and you know, probably uh, next Tuesday, if not a month from now. Uh, yeah, that's all a problem. Um, so thank you so much for those those comments. Yeah. Um, it is a goal to um, be a better and better saint. Nothing wrong with that. But as our Lord teaches, um, how, does the, how does the branch become fruitful? Not by trying really hard to be fruitful, but by abiding in him. He is the vine, we are the branches. If we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. In that sense, our whole orientation, if if we want to bear more and more fruit, which we do, if we want to be better and better saints, which we do want that, um, then how to accomplish that is to be ever more and more focused on Christ and receive that life from the vine that that life might flow through us and bear much fruit. Whereas American evangelicalism would say, look at the fruit, make a list, go do it. Oriented in the entirely in the wrong way. Forget, abi- forget abiding in the vine, just go bear fruit. No, 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 no. According to our Lord himself, abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. So against the kind of, hey, if you want more fruit, you've got to just go grow more fruit, make a list and get it done, is this idea of like, fruit doesn't matter. Okay. Is that a biblical teaching? No, that's a reaction against an unbiblical teaching that is simply another unbiblical teaching. So the the medicine here then, um, and this is the case in almost all theological controversy, is not merely to react against the error. That's just to fall into the opposite error, but to react by going back to the scriptures and getting it right. I see a hand in the back popping up. You just gave the answer for this, but in one at one time you described that human beings were created to be doers and have dominion over the world and do work. And so, of course, it's our nature when we want to be more righteous and more saved and do the right thing, we think, I must do something. But what you just described is, you do nothing because Christ has done it all. God's done it all. It's a gift. But then you keep going back to, well, what do I need to do now? What do I need to do now? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what you just said, the answer is stay in the word. And I mean, it, it's there for a second and then it goes away. But mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's right. That thin hairline truth is you do nothing and the good works are done through you somehow, right? Yeah, I mean, a right distinction in this area is essential, and that's to realize that our standing before God is not based on our good works any more than it's based on our failures. We are justified by grace through faith apart from our works. We are his baptized children whom he's pleased to have, even if we're mess-ups. And, you know, just as you're pleased with your to have your children, you love them even if they're mess-ups. You never stop loving them. You never stop wanting the best for them. 
Um, you never stop trying to help them in one way, shape, or form, even if that's ultimately a tough love kind of situation. Um, that's exactly parallel to how God is. Um, now, if we if we come to having confidence in God such that we know that our sins are forgiven and he loves us, there's nothing wrong with turning on that in, inward and inner-built desire to to do. It's just what we... If you love something, you're, you're doing it. If you love reading, you're reading books. If you love movies, you're watching them. I, I mean, this just isn't rocket science, right? Uh, if you love something, you're doing it. And if you love God, you're doing his stuff. That's it. We don't have to make any laws about it. We don't have to... We don't have to measure it. We don't have to, you know, um, you just, if you love it, do it and do it more. And then you kind of realize, oh gosh, my, the, the things I, the things I love and I want to do because I love them, um, I can't do because I've got this thing called my sinful flesh. Remember Paul reflecting on that? So, yeah, we, what do we do? We put our hope in Christ that eventually he's going to diminish the sinful flesh. Um, and ultimately destroy it. We we put our hope in in Christ's forgiveness as our sole righteousness, and we get back on about the business of trying to conquer the flesh. Flesh is at constant war with us. It's constantly gaining ground and then losing ground and then losing more ground and then gaining ground again. It's just a constant battle. It'll be one of the great reliefs of being out of this life is that that battle and that inner strife will be gone. But yeah, I think we definitely just overcomplicate this. We need to keep the truth the truth we need to keep the emphasis in the right place and then go about our business with joy with as as good branches with our attention put on the vine knowing that um, apart from him we can do nothing so abiding in him through us then he will bear much fruit in our lives Okay, so um, as we look at the text in the closing chapter, he's broken this up into three chapters, and they are they are summaries of what has gone before. So, uh, the first sin, the second, the devil, and and the third, death. So, just to highlight um, his statement on sin, um, he titles this "Sin Forgiven for You," and we remember if you. Um, yeah, if you if you drop down to let's see, let's just say the second paragraph on two thirty three, and Wolf Mueller's told a story here about a about a uh, two thirty three. Yeah. Um, Luther's told a, or Luther, Wolf Mueller's told a story here of a man who does not believe that Christ's forgiveness is sufficient for him. He thinks he's a bigger sinner than Christ as a savior, which of course is impossible. And then he says down at the bottom, um, the second paragraph from the bottom, despair then is only another face for pride, and pride is idolatry. So that is something we want to be aware of as we receive the forgiveness of sins. It is a full and complete forgiveness of sins. We cannot say to ourselves or to God or to anyone else, I've sinned too much. I've sinned too many times. I've put myself outside of God's grace. What I've done is too terrible or too repetitious uh, to be forgiven. That's not humility, which it sometimes poses as. That's actually pride. And it's pride that calls Christ a liar because Christ says, no, your sins are forgiven. Those sins, no matter how deep, huge, grievous, those sins, no matter how frequent and repetitious, have all been placed upon me and I have put them away forever. And so this is a beautiful 
gospel where no one is unsavable. As Wolfmuller says, you're only unsavable if Jesus says you're unsavable. And what does Jesus say? Rather, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And I, I often say that in that, in that one word, whoever, is the entire grace of God, the entire gospel of God. Because that whoever means you and it means me. It means the worst possible sinner, the worst possible hypocrite, which if we take St. Paul's example, we should all think about ourselves. <laughs> who's the worst sinner who's ever lived? Me. And uh, who is the least, least likely to uh, receive God's grace? Me. But it's precisely to me that Christ says, I forgive you. And such a beautiful example in St. Paul where he says, look at all the terrible things I've done. And he gives you a little litany. And then he says, look, if Christ has forgiven me, then he can also forgive you. And he does. So that is how sin is overcome by the gospel. And by the way, we need this gospel over and over and over again. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that's not just conversion. That's not just the time in which you swap from an unbeliever to a believer. That you need your faith continually uh, uh, sustained, restored, strengthened, and grown. And you get that by the proclamation of the gospel. So faith comes by hearing. It's not just a one-shot deal. That's why we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. Every Sunday, um, even every day of our lives. All right, next would be the devil. That's introduced on page 235. And of course, we've spent a long time uh, talking about this, even recently, as we had our eye on eschatology. You can remember from Revelation 12, verse 9, this quotation, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Quite fitting on today, the day of St. Michael and all angels, uh, to remember how Christ ascends into heaven, seated at the throne, and then Michael and the other holy angels cast the dragon, cast Satan and a third of the angels, the fallen angels, down with him to earth. And we're told that he is here on earth doing the worst he can because he knows his time is short. Soon enough, he's going to be kicked out of here as well. Okay, and he, um, again, how is Satan kicked out of heaven and how will he be kicked out of earth because Christ the crucified sheds his blood that makes atonement for our sins? Um, do you remember what Satan is in Hebrew, what it means? Accuser, right. So he stands in heaven accusing the brothers day and night. Well, he's cast out. He can no longer make those accusations. Why? Because his accusations are false? No, they're true, but they're rendered false because the blood of Christ has made atonement for those sins. So he says, hey, look, here, Rhodey's got a sin. I want you to know about this, God. And God's like, you know, Christ intervenes and is like, yeah, my blood covered that sin. And God's like, I don't see any sin. So there's no room for an accuser. So he's cast out. So all, you know, I think Luther says this, that all Satan has left is the lie. It's an empty accusation against you that you've sinned too much, you're damned. And what is absolutely contrary to that and absolutely destroys that lie is the blood of Jesus. And we shouldn't think abstractly about that. When the blood of Jesus is poured from the chalice to your lips, that is his true blood and that is your true cleansing and that is the end of the devil's lie. So we, uh, 
we should despair of ourselves and of all works and of anything worthy in us and simply receive that blood and believe that by it we are cleansed. And in so doing, we overcome all the temptations of the devil. Um, the devil's whole point in getting us to sin isn't just, ha-ha, now you've sinned, ha-ha, now it's going to hurt you and people around you. I mean, sure, he's happy with that. But remember, if he gets you to sin, not only can he do all the kind of pain in you and in everybody else, but the ultimate goal is he wants to overthrow the faith of you and everybody else around. That's the ultimate goal. That's So when he gets you to sin, that's he's getting you to kind of play the poker game now, to play the chess match. And, of course, that's not one we're going to win unless we receive the absolution of Christ, are cleansed by his blood, and simply cling to that and reset and get ourselves out of that game. Because the devil's going to try to uh, toss us into some kind of gross false belief um, of which we might experience the two most common, um, despair or pride. Um, the kind of pride of I'm righteous and don't need Christ's forgiveness, or the kind of despair, just pride masked. Oh, I'm too big of a sinner, Christ can't. Forgive me. Okay. So, again, we, when we recognize these games, we can see how Satan is cast down by the gospel, specifically by the blood of Jesus. All right, so that's sin, that's death. Let me hit, uh, or uh, sorry, the devil, and let me hit death on page 238, and then we'll, we'll pause and see um, if you have any reflections. So, 238... He has it titled, Death Swallowed Up for You. And of course, that a quotation of 1 Corinthians 15.54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Not exactly what the scriptures mean, but when I think of it, uh, one of the... Well, and I like fishing, so there's obviously an attraction there. But the uh, one of the ways that the church fathers thought about this swallowing up Okay, so if you're hungry for a fish, if you want to swallow up the fish, how are you going to how are you going to catch him by getting him to do what? Swallow up your bait. <laughs> so um, this is a this is a, a way that the church fathers preached. Um, if you look at Christ on the cross, it almost looks a little like a hook jammed into the earth. You know, the top. You have to use your imagination. And on, the, and on the hook is Christ. Now, they would actually quote this. Remember in Psalm 22 where he says, I am a worm and not a man? So they would say, there's the worm on the hook, and death comes up to swallow him. But in swallowing him, thinking he's just a man, death swallows God and is captured and is ultimately swallowed up by God, just like a fish would be swallowed up by the fisherman. So, death goes to swallow up Christ and ends up swallowed up itself. This beautiful kind of fishing motif. So, I just commend that to you, even, even if that isn't explicitly what's being taught here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a fun way to think about it, in a way that the church has thought about it for uh, many years. So, death is unnatural. Or, excuse me, death is natural. <laughs> I hear that lie all the time. Yeah. Obviously, we know that death is not natural. That's my Freudian slip. So, yeah, we hear this all the time in our culture that death is natural. Next, death is a part of life. Wolfmuller continues, we use these cliches to comfort ourselves in the face of death, but they are not true. Death is not natural. It is not part of life. We are not supposed to die. Adam and Eve were not supposed to die, and neither were you. 
So um, he goes on to talk about um, how it is that we die by falling into sin, falling away from the one who is life, and then how it is that the gospel restores this. So um, it restores us from death. That by death he conquers death. That though we die, yet shall we live. And we, in truth, whoever lives and believes in him will never die. So death hasn't just been defeated by Christ, but has been utterly transformed. Death, which was the gateway into eternal death and eternal separation from God, has been changed now and transformed into the gateway to eternal life and into the presence of God. So it's too little to say that Jesus has just rendered death as some kind of neutral thing. Um, and then it's too easy to slip from it's just a neutral thing that, oh, yeah, I guess we have to do, to, well, it's a bad thing still. Nobody likes to die. Nobody wants to die. Nobody appreciates funerals. Um, so then why do we die? And why does God have us die? And all of this comes from a fundamental misunderstanding that, and, and a too small of a, an understanding of what the gospel is, that God has merely rendered death neutral or something like that, or something that, from which we can recover. That's insufficient. He has so completely destroyed death that death has become its opposite. The way the church fathers like to talk about this is that death has become birth and that the tomb has become a womb. And there's a beautiful detail we're told in the Gospels that Christ is laid into a virgin tomb. And that language of virgin, why would you ever use that language? Because of the virgin birth. He's born of a virgin and he's laid into a virgin tomb that that virgin tomb then would become a virgin womb from which he is born and now we understand why the scriptures call him the first born from the dead. And then if we connect that with Romans 6 that we are through baptism buried with him that means buried with him into that virgin tomb that thus becomes a womb, then he is the firstborn from the dead, we are to follow. And so this is a glimpse of what it will mean to be sons of God and sons of light for all eternity, is we will be those who are born from the dead. Okay, we will be those who have conquered the grave itself. So what was once our shame becomes our glory. I mean, if there were other beings to see us, they wouldn't go, Oh, you died and rose? You must be lesser. They would say, What an astonishing glory that you overcame death through the death of Christ and have been conformed into his image and have come forth from the same tomb, from the same womb as he did, and thus are truly his siblings, truly immortal, never to die again. So this beautiful kind of imagery that, um, and that's just one example. There are many other examples in, in the scriptures and in the preaching of the church that show us that death has not merely been overcome or rendered neutral. Death has been turned into its opposite. It has been reversed and made to serve the exact opposite purpose for which it was first imposed or by which it first came into being. Does that make sense? Okay. So we have really good news in regard to death. And maybe just to end this with um, the promise that just as Christ has died for all, all will rise.
That's how universal Christ's work is. Uh, there's something very telling and poignant in this. Uh, we should say out front, does that mean that everyone's saved? No. Does that mean universalism? No, that's not what the scriptures teach. But Christ's forgiveness is, in fact, so universal, so real, and so definitive that death is reversed in that respect for all, whether they like it or not, whether they believe or not. You are raised in your body on the last day. Now, if you've rejected Christ and rejected the salvation, rejected God, fled away from him, and that's what you continue to do, well, then God's finally going to give you what you want, and you will end up away from the one who is light for eternity. That's eternal darkness. You will end up away from the one who is uh, eternal life, and thus you'll end in eternal death. Okay, but you will do so risen in your body, understanding that for all eternity, Christ forgave your sins and made atonement. And the proof of that is the fact that you are in your very body. All right? So um, that's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity is because you will look nowhere else than your own self to know what Christ did for you, what God has done for you, and his, his love for you that you've spurned and rejected because you loved yourself more. Okay, so then we have this glorious hope that, and it is a it is a hope based on the word and promises of God. So it's not just an empty hope or a wishful hope. It's a certain hope that Christ will indeed prov- uh, fulfill his promises and the dead will be restored to life. Our loved ones in Christ will be returned to us. We ourselves will rise from the dead. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Which, by the way, is going to be filled with all manner of form and beauty and godliness and wonder and it's not like we're all just you know lobotomized and then floating around in clouds forever interesting isn't it how american gnosticism and gnostic christianity also ends with you're just floating around disembodied forever in a sea of clouds strumming a harp gross that sounds like hell to me you're raised in your body surrounded by the saints raised in their body all of us perfected, all of us in the fullness of what God has made us to be. We'll look at saints that day and just be astonished. The same way we read of, of biblical angels and are astonished by their beauty or their size or their majesty. By the way, those angels will be all around us and it'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. And I love what C.S. Lewis says, you know, don't get all dreamy about this. I'm paraphrasing, but don't get all dreamy about this as if this is all going to be misty and, um, you know, nebulous and abstract. No, this world and this life is misty and nebulous and abstract. This is the dream, and it's a rather bad one, from which we shall wake and see reality, and everything will be crisp and clear and concrete and more real than ever before. And that's how we will embrace the saints, the angels, and of course, at the center of it all, our Lord Jesus, revealing unto us the Father and and the light of Jesus, the, the, the face of Jesus enlightened by the light of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, heaven is, in that sense, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be more real than this life. More real, more wonderful. And all of that's sure, uh, sure to come. I mean, the great beauty of, of uh, getting older and suffering various ailments. At any time you, you, um, you reflect on the fact that the, tox- the, the clock is ticking and there's not much more time left and things are getting worse. You know, what does our Lord say? Let that fill you with joy because it's, these are signs that you are journeying toward him and toward eternal life. What's true for the whole world when disaster is hitting the world, we lift up our heads because we know he's coming. 
should happen to us microcosmically. When you look in the mirror and you go, oh, I'm not what I used to be. All right, lift up your head because it means that you are, in fact, journeying closer and closer to him and to uh, being free from the sinful nature and filled with his love and his glory forever. All right, last but not least, I want to point this out real quick. It's two more points. I know we're at the last minute here. On 242, this word on men, we want to, uh, we want to revitalize this word amen. It's a biblical word. It means yes, yes, it shall be so. And where we want to revitalize this, especially, I, I would suspect in our homes, but I know especially in the divine service. So the amen is the place for you to express your faithful response to what God has just said or what God has just done. So when there's an opportunity for an amen in the service, and I know they sometimes catch us off guard. They do me too. Uh, but but let your amen ring out as yes, yes, it shall be so. It's the response of faith. So when a prayer ends and you wholeheartedly agree, let your amen be heard. Say it with some gusto and some oomph. We pastors need to do this too when we, when we um, say things like, you know, praise be to God and glory be to God and that kind of thing. I mean, these are exclamations of the wonder of God. And we all need to remember and remind ourselves that these words have meaning and that they have, we are actively involved. So when we give our amen, let it be a hearty amen that we're in full agreement. We're in full thanksgiving. We receive in faith what it is that our Lord has said or, or done for us. Okay. So that's your word. So on Sunday, I'll expect a few more decibels. And then last but not least, if you flip over to 244, that's, that's the end of Wolfmuller's book. It's a fitting way to end on that word, Amen, which is the faith has received the gift. And then if you flip over to 244, he's got an appendix attached that's introducing the Book of Concord. I just commend this to you because um, the Book of Concord isn't merely a book of the confessions that come out of the Reformation but it lays the foundation of what the Christian faith is and what Christians have always believed, taught, and confessed. So if you go to the the first, um, and he presents this as the alternative to American Christianity, uh, rightfully so, but as you go into the very beginning of the Book of Concord, the first thing you see are the three ecumenical creeds. So these are the creeds informed by the scriptures that the church has confessed in one way, shape, or form for 2,000 years. And you move on then from these creeds, which are confessions, into the Augsburg Confession. That's the foundation. You can read the Augsburg Confession in really short order. But it confesses um, not just, hey, these are the problems we have with the Roman Catholic Church, but it confesses this is what all Christians have believed in all times and places about God, about Christ, about sin, etc., etc. And then it goes on and says, so why has the church in the West, why has, you know, Roman Catholicism under the papacy, why have we turned then and gone into these errors? And these are the correction of those errors. So what you glimpse just even in these first two parts of the Book of Concord, the Creeds and the Augsburg Confession, is that Lutherans then and now have no desire whatsoever to be our own denomination, our own church. We want to be the one church that has always been, and we want to do that by correcting the errors and excesses of the Roman papacy. So the Augsburg Confession will show you that, will show that um, we are in continuity with the scriptures and with the whole history of the church. As you get into the apology and the other documents, I won't go into detail here, but the whole argument that proceeds is 
This is what the scriptures teach. This is what the church fathers teach. This is what we teach. These things are all in a line. If you're going to condemn us, you're going to condemn these church fathers, and you're going to condemn these scriptures. A beautiful, beautiful faith-strengthening book, and will help you understand the spirit of what it means to um, be a Christian and be in keeping with the teaching of the church for its 2,000-year history, beginning with the apostolic scriptures as foundation. So I commend this to you. It'll give you a brief little synopsis of each of these and maybe entice you into reading a couple of them. Again, the place to start is the creeds and the um, Augsburg Confession. Those are the foundation, and in a sense, everything that follows is commentary on those. All right, that's it. We'll stick around and have question and answer session. You guys can share your comments and reflections with me, but let's shut down the class. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord. Amen. Amen. There it is. Thank you. The Lord be with you.